Hello and welcome to another episode of What She Said. I'm your host, Lucy Lucraft. I am a freelance journalist and podcast producer living in Brighton. This week, I chat to Penny Windsor, a freelance photographer, writer and now brand new author. She wrote her book, Tender, um, last year and it is due to be released in a couple of weeks' time. This is an episode where we delve into the topic of caring, which is what her book is all about. Penny is so... She's so lovely, first and foremost. Um, She's also really bloody interesting. Her book, Tender, is all about caring and Penny's role as a carer and how huge swathes of people in the population who are carers and might not even realize it and how that caring work manifests itself the joys the difficulties the challenges the nuance um and it's just a really beautiful book um i highly recommend it so make sure you pre-order your copy the links to everything will be in the show notes so i'm giving you a bit of a trigger warning um we don't discuss um suicide in detail but we talk about grief um so if that's a trigger for you I would recommend not listening it was a really funny episode I said I wasn't going to tell anybody this but (laughs) we recorded and I guess both of us were I'm really struggling to get back in the into the swing of kind of interviewing people and so I really wasn't asking very good questions and Penny is a consummate professional but at the end when we stopped officially talking for the podcast but we're just chatting the conversation then started flowing even better than it had in in the official kind of podcast recording time and um, luckily I was still recording it so (laughs) so I then have spliced it all up I just really wanted some of the really interesting things that we talked about after the fact to be in the main podcast anyway um, enough uh, waffling from me I say that every week but this is my podcast and I can waffle if I want to. <laughs> um, if you liked the episode, please like, share, subscribe, review, <laughs> you know, all the things that podcasters ask you to do because it really does make a difference to us. Doing this podcast is an absolute joy. I love doing it and I've got a wonderful group of patrons who help me fund this podcast and cover all my business costs by supporting me over there. Um, so if that's something you would like to be part of, then head on over to patreon.com Lucy Lucraft. That's it. Enjoy the episode. It was fascinating and moving and, oh, you write in such an incredible, incredible way. Um, First of all, who are you, Penny? Tell us who you are. (laughs) Gosh, where do you begin? Um, I am an Australian who's been in London for a very, very long time. I live in South East London. I've got two children. Um, I'm a professional photographer and I have been for probably about 14 or 15 years and I'm also now an author. So exciting. How does it feel to say that? I think that's the first time I've said author out loud. Ah! (laughs) So I would definitely call myself a writer. I've been a writer for a while but um, an author yeah that sounds really different doesn't it? It does yeah it sounds really grown up. So Penny's written a book. Tell us about your book Tender. Tender is about um, being a carer and I would say mostly <clears throat> it's about how we look after ourselves while we're supporting somebody else. Um, and it really came about because um, I have a disabled child and I felt like the conversations around caring was really limited. Um, we talk about caring in a, in a very surface level way, I think, in society. And 
the more conversations I had with other carers of all different kinds, not just parents, um, the more I realized that we had so much in common and how common our experience was and how much we needed each other. We needed each other's stories. Um, we needed to tell our stories. Um, and these stories are not really out there. And it is one of the most universal human experiences, like being a parent. Being a carer is something that almost all of us will do at some point. It was so interesting to me, comparison of being a carer in loads of different ways and and just that you didn't even realize you were a carer I'd never thought of that before because I can see that in so many in so many different people and in my own life where you've just yeah you you are a carer this is why the numbers are so challenging to quantify so I think the official number at the moment in the UK is around 7 million but actually they think it's more like 9 million plus because people don't identify as carers that's actually one of the biggest challenges is actually by the time people identify as carers they're often in a crisis because they don't realize that's what they're doing um and they don't know that they need to ask for support because nobody's telling you (laughs) nobody gives you support Mm. unless you ask for it and often you you have to beg for it and even often mm. go to tribunal to get it so it's not like they're handing yeah. out support left right and center so often people get into a real crisis point a massive crisis before um any support's given and obviously at the moment that that's likely to get far far worse i've spoken to i've checked in with a lot of the carers that i spoke to for the book um most of them are doing it 24 7 now completely alone it's it's like it's not sustainable so I honestly don't know what it's going to mean for people it's going to be there's going to be a massive health crisis for carers coming up I think but I think it really has shone a light like this this has shown everybody I hope just what happens when you support a Tory government for this long because this is what happened I hope so god I hope so I just felt like and I wanted something. I was looking for something that was a kind of a deep dive and that was nuanced that talked about all of the difficult feelings that come up, um, all of the things that are really hard to talk about with other people, but also all of the joys and the sense of purpose and um, and even a lot of the pleasure in being a carer as well. So um, I couldn't find it, so I wrote it. it's the book you wish you could have read I guess I really I really needed it when my son was first diagnosed when he was three and I also really needed it when I was a teenager when I was caring for my mother and I didn't know at the time that's what I was doing I'd never heard the word young carer um, when I was at, I, I think I probably heard the term for the first time when I was around 30 and she died when I was 22 so it was not a word I would have associated with myself at all. Um, and that's actually the main reason why it's not in the title of the book, because um, so many people don't associate with the word carer. Um, most people, when they think of that word, they think of somebody, um, I think one of my interviewees put it, somebody who cleans up bodily fluids. Um, mm. And that's actually only one very small part of what it might mean to be a carer um for a lot of people it's not that at all and caring can be very um it it can be just you know very little like a you know a few hours a week here and there 
Um, it could be with somebody that you don't actually live with, um, or it could be really intense and 24 hours a day and involve a lot of personal care. Um, but yeah, so the, the spectrum is really wide. And I think that's probably part of the reason why it's not really talked about in detail. Sometimes what you'll see is that there, you know, very particular kind of disabilities or illnesses will get talked about um, in terms of care, but but it won't be talked about in the wider context of caring. So you might get books about supporting someone that has cancer or raising an autistic child or, you know, things that very specific things. But actually what I was really interested in was the topic of caring itself. So when the book starts and you're talking about your son and his diagnosis at a very, it's, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know, is it young to be diagnosed with autism? Yeah, no, I think it's not young. It's, it was on the earlier side, but it's not, it's not young for a child that, or a person that has learning difficulties um and my son is autistic and he has learning difficulties so he had quite some quite severe developmental delays and so that's around two to three is when those uh kids like that would probably get diagnosed because that's when the gap really starts to widen between um uh, kids with learning difficulties and kids that don't have them um some autistic kids who don't have learning difficulties it's just it's just more obvious because some children have a speech delay which then ca- they catch up around five or six that's quite common as well um but then there are loads and loads of autistic people who don't get diagnosed until uh now you know until adulthood and lots of them actually get diagnosed along with their children because you know they're realizing their children are having a few issues and then they're like oh I was so similar when I was a child <laughs> and then all the pieces start to fall together. Uh, so, so it, you can be diagnosed at any time, but if, if, if there are some particular issues around development, um, then you're likely to get diagnosed. Um, so yeah, what I found really interesting was, um, that you, you did, yeah, the fact that you didn't realize that you were a carer for your mom and that's when it all twigged that you'd done this before mm. you could do this because you'd done this before. Um, and, learning about your childhood was also really fascinating because in many ways it sounded like kind of otherworldly it's interesting actually I I very much feel I had a childhood of two halves the first half until I was 11 was was almost ridiculously idyllic it I, I still am very close with the three other girls I lived on the street with we talk about it now that we can't actually quite believe the magical childhood that we have my mum was very well when I was young. Um, we had we lived in the in the far outer suburbs of Melbourne. We had an acre of garden. I lived on a quiet dead end street with everyone else who had an acre of garden, um, um, and we had this very free and easy and very happy, secure childhood. And um, my mum loved being a mother, and she loved being a full time mother, and she was really thriving when I was young. Um, and then. We moved when I was 11 to a, a farm, which was not that far away. It was only 20 minutes away, but it was just sort of right on the edge of Melbourne. Um, my mum had sort of project managed the whole build while my dad had been overseas and had thrown herself into it, but had been quite reluctant to leave behind this beautiful life that they had created for us. Um, but we did, we moved to the farm and then things really started to fall apart for her. And I think it was compounded. It wasn't caused by the move by any means, but it was compounded by the isolation of being um, away from uh, our, our, the community that, that my my mum had created around us as well. Yeah, uh, two halves is exactly the right way to describe it. And you were really quite young. I wasn't. You? And my mum, my mum 
started to get unwell when I was 11. She started to have panic attacks. But it really wasn't until I was about 13 that she really, really started to have a f- like a full proper breakdown, which meant she was not able to function at all. Um, and at that mm-hmm. point we, we left the farm and we were living in the suburbs and it was much easier because um, I could walk myself to the train station to get to, to school, things like that. So I, I was able to be independent. So we moved somewhere I could be independent because I was completely dependent. When we moved to the suburbs, I really thought, oh, well, things will get much better now because – I can be independent and mum won't have to get in the car all the time and she'll be near friends again and all these sorts of things. But actually the opposite happened. She went really, really downhill. And um, and really from about 13, um, we were having to kind of pretty much look after ourselves at that point. Um, and we were very, very lucky. My mum did get some help in. She had um, a really wonderful woman who was an ex-mental health nurse come in a few times a week and be I guess like a paid care for my mum for a few hours but also to kind of be like tidy the house and and maybe cook a meal and stick it in the fridge for us and things like that so we had someone checking in on us um and my parents were divorced by this point and my dad was living in America so he was coming back and checking in with us but he wasn't around if you know what I mean he wasn't in the house and he wasn't around for you know months and months at a time I'm not sure anyone really quite realized the severity of the situation until later we weren't alone we were definitely not alone I have two aunts my mum's sisters who were very close to and people were checking in on us but I really think people didn't understand that quite the severity of what was going on um that we were just looking after ourselves and and I think there were there were periods where my mum wouldn't be out of bed for two weeks um and we just got on with it I suppose I think there's something about um so my sister also died by suicide and I think something that people probably don't always understand is that it's not a a deep dive it's not like fine one day not the next it's you know incremental little well I mean I can't speak exactly to your experience but I think there's similarities in that there's there's incremental steps and when you're in it I mean, hindsight is wonderful, but when you're in it, you don't necessarily see every little step as it's happening. Absolutely. And also, you can't know what's going on inside somebody. I think you really can't know. And from our point of view, I think in our family, it was very cyclical. So my mum would become very, very unwell, be in bed for weeks. Uh, I'd be sitting by her bedside every night and she'd be crying on my shoulder every night for weeks on end, telling me things I really shouldn't have known at 13, as you can imagine. Um, And eventually it would get to a crisis and she would go into hospital and have medication changes and be watched for a while and stay there for two weeks and come out again and be really hopeful and really positive and really gung-ho and might be great for a month or two and then slowly descend again and this was a cycle that happened over and over again um, until she died. Yeah. So it wasn't that it was always bad. And I think that's the thing that's kind of hard to explain to someone. You go through really great periods. And also my mum was very self-aware and really articulate and very open about her experiences with me. So we did a lot of this processing of what was going on together when she was well. And then things would descend again. Um, and... Looking back now, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful that she was able to be so articulate about her experiences with me because I think if she had hidden them from me more, I wouldn't understand. I wouldn't have understood quite as much when she died. Um, and 
And I think not knowing what she had experienced would have been much harder than knowing what she experienced, even though it was really painful to know how difficult things have been. Do you know Julia Samuels? Yes, I do. Something that she says is, especially with children um, and bereavement. So my dad died when I was younger. And um, so I've experienced bereavement as like a child, well, a young adult and as someone older and definitely and in, in fact it's kind of universal to be honest but specifically for children not telling them things means that you because people are doing it because they want to be kind and especially if people die in you know uh not as easy to explain kind of way um yeah. parents or adults will strive to I don't know protect children and make it not hurt and Julia says well that's ridiculous you can't you can't make them not feel sad. You just can't. Um, but what happens mm. when you don't tell them the truth is that they fill in the blanks. Yeah. And what you fill in the blanks with is always so, so much worse than anything that could happen in reality. And I really think that's true. And I think it's true for adults as well, but particularly as a child. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. And actually, I'm very open with my daughter, who's eight now, about the fact that her grandmother died by suicide. Um, And it's not easy to talk about because, you know, to, to be able to articulate to a young child that sometimes people feel so so bereft that they can't continue but the way I've explained it to her is that my mother was very ill she couldn't help it it was like a it's it was like it's like a symptom of a sickness um and it's not something you can control and that doesn't mean it's inevitable because with the right support most people can avoid suicide um it's not inevitable but at the same time it's nobody's fault And it's not always controllable. And I think it's really important to have these conversations. Um, I think a lot about how different things would have been for me if my mother had died younger. So um, my mum was very, had a very, very bad year when I was 14. It was a really bad year. And she attempted suicide, I think, a couple of times. Definitely one time that I 100% knew about. Um, I think there were other times that were hidden from me. Um, and I think I've thought a lot over the years about the fact that, that actually she, she, she could very well have died that year. And in fact, she probably should have died that year in terms of like, um, things could have very easily gone that way. And, and that would have been a really different experience for me, incredibly different because the time between 14 and 22, although some of those years were incredibly difficult, um, we also had some really really wonderful times but also we had a lot of time to process what she had gone through together um and I learned so much between 14 and 22 about mental illness and about what my mum experienced to the point that I think the difference for me losing my mother at those two different ages would have been completely completely and utterly different even though it would have been the same you know end result um and I think that's to do with how how um well my mum was able to process things with me and not afraid to process things with me do you think that's a bit of a a bit of a kind of universal experience of carers as well because even when you're you know I don't want to compare every kind of I don't want to compare all caring to grief but I think sometimes in because that's incredibly problematic but in some senses there's um uh 
parts of grief that are universal to um, living experiences that we have, as in heartbreak or people changing or um, even coronavirus. Yeah, people are experiencing it. This whole global pandemic and how our world is changing, as you know, how we would experience grief. Yeah, I think that was so interesting to really get into in the book, this idea about grief. And um, the word grief is so associated with death, but it's it's not it's not entirely about death, though. It's about loss, and loss can be anything, and loss can even be abstract. But I think the word grief itself is really difficult to use in other kinds of losses sometimes because it can feel a bit like a betrayal to use a word that's associated with death along with a different kind of loss. Um, But, you know, that's the English language. Unfortunately, there isn't another word that describes those feelings, which Mm. are so raw when you lose something that you either thought you had or you did have. There's quite a big divide often in the disabled community between parent carers and disabled people and some of the language that's used. a lot of parents of disabled children experience a huge amount of grief when their children are first diagnosed. Um, and many people have an issue with that, with the word grief being used in that context because their children have not died. But they have lost something. Um, and although it's really hard to, <laughs> how do I put this? It's really hard to articulate what that loss is when it's abstract. Because um, you haven't actually lost it. You've lost the idea of it. No matter what you say consciously, your subconscious has probably made a whole lot of expectations when you have a child that you may not even realise it. And one of them was that I would have a child that could speak. And so being faced with a situation in which I wasn't sure if my son would ever speak, um, I had to really process those feelings and that feeling of loss it is a really difficult thing to talk about because what exactly did I lose I didn't lose anything because he didn't have it in the first place um but what I lost was the idea of a child who could tell me when they're in pain you know the the child that could tell you that their stomach hurt we had to go to hospital because they had appendicitis you know that's like one of my biggest fears is that that my son will experience something acute and not be able to explain it because it's not just that he doesn't have the words. It's also that he, he's not very good at indicating. So if he has a, I've never ever known in his life if he's had a headache because he can't indicate internal pain to me. So I've had to accept the things that come along with having a child that doesn't speak. And that can be really, really challenging um, to articulate without implying that you don't want the child that you got. Because, you know, I adore the child I have. I absolutely adore him. I don't want him to be different. But that's, but there's still a, there's still a letting go that has to happen um, in order to fully embrace the life that we have. Um, And yeah, that's a really, it's a really challenging thing to articulate without hurting anybody. Yeah, because I think, (laughs) I mean, motherhood, man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's, oh, oh. It's a minefield. I think um, we walk such a, fi- a tight, a tightrope, basically. Of um, I'm so grateful, but also this is really hard, and I need to say it out loud. And um, I don't like this part, but I also love all the other parts. And 
I think that's pretty much motherhood in a nutshell. Is, and then yeah. if you add any other, you know, any other deviation from, you know, quote unquote normal, man, it gets so much harder. I actually wanted to ask you um, about the disabled community, because I suppose from the age that Arthur was three um you were thrown into a new community alongside motherhood and how that's been and you know finding support and you talk a lot on Instagram about all the difficulties that and the joys but the difficulties that um carers are facing right now and you know especially when it comes to the political climate and you know how was that for you when you first when Arthur first got diagnosed? Well, I think the problem is at first you don't know there's a community. <laughs> you have no idea. Um, and you've got to find it. And that mm. is the really, really challenging bit when either somebody first becomes disabled or a loved one becomes disabled or born disabled. You know, it's um, it's not like there's an NCT group that you go to. <laughs> um, I think there's also this misconception that when your child gets diagnosed, you get a huge amount of support. Um, yeah, that might be the case in some um, disabilities and chronic illnesses. It is not the case with autism. It is mm. 100% not the case with autism. We have a fantastic local autism support group, uh, which I did tap into early on and I met some fantastic women who I'm still friends with today and we still have the WhatsApp group going. But... That even that took a little while to tap into. But but in terms of support, I mean, I really got nothing. There's no kind of for a developmental disorder because it sort of taps into quite a few different areas. You don't you don't really get anyone coordinating the care at all. You are that person. You're the one that now has to be the expert. You're the one that now has to liaise with the speech therapist and an occupational therapist if you're lucky enough to get any, which I we actually weren't. I had to pay privately for occupational therapy. Um Uh, I was the one who had to research whether it was worth paying for occupational therapy because nobody was there to tell me, you know, and actually occupational therapy does wonders for kids with sensory difficulties. You should, you should, if you've got any money, that's what you should spend it on. You know, there's nobody there telling you that you have no idea. You're very much on your own. So um, that's the massive challenge I think is finding that community. And also um, the online world is a minefield of absolute fucking shit about <laughs> especially about autism um, yeah, as right. you can imagine so um wading through all of that information is exhausting so yeah. you're coming to terms with the new diagnosis you're a full-time carer to this child you're now realizing is going to need really high potentially really high levels of support possibly forever um and then you've got so much information available to you And you have no idea where any of it has any value at all. The sooner we can kind of lock into real life community, but also one-to-one community online, um, I think the better it is. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to write this book, because actually, you know, for a parent, it's one thing to find that community. I think parents generally are pretty well tapped into communities online and in real life. Um, It's much harder for other groups of people. I think some of the hardest it's for people in their 20s and 30s who are caring for mm. another family member because it's a more unusual situation to be in. If you're in your 20s and 30s, most of your friends traveling, doing new jobs, uh, getting married, having children. Um, and if you are supporting a partner or a parent who's very disabled or, or very ill and you're doing it at very high levels, you're in a really isolated position because you're very separated from your peers. Mm. 
you know, there aren't there aren't dropping groups for people in in their twenties who are looking after a parent with Alzheimer's. You know, it's it's really difficult. And I think that's where online communities have been absolutely fantastic and the online world for both disabled people and for carers. I think the online world has been an absolute God's end because people are able to find each other. Um, <clears throat> I met and spoke to people who found other carers through hashtags with very rare diseases. <laughs> so they would just put a hashtag in front of the rare disease of the person that they care for. And they were able to find other people who were um, supporting people who had similar experiences. Finding that community, it takes time. You have to wade through often a lot of really awful misinformation. But having that community is absolutely vital because I think we all need to feel like we have a place we can go, whether that's online or in real life, where we can we don't have to explain our backstory all the time. Um, and we also don't want to be in a position where we're constantly pitied because there is absolutely nothing worse than saying, talking about something really normal that happens in your house and just see the look of shocked faces all around you. Um, it is just so incredibly isolating and painful to see that your experiences are not reflected in anyone else's. Part of the reason we need that community is just so that we don't feel so alone in our experiences. And the thing is, we aren't alone. Being a carer is a very, very common experience, really, really common. And there are lots of us out there to connect with. Um, I remember before my son was diagnosed and my daughter was born and that's when things got really challenging. So around the time he was two and my daughter was born and I would go and meet up with some friends who had children of very similar ages and they would all be going, Oh gosh, it's really getting, thank God it's getting easier. Thank God it's getting easier. And I just remember thinking it's getting harder. It's getting harder. There's something wrong with me because it's just getting harder. And I just couldn't relate at all to anything. Any of the other parents would say, I mean, nothing. And that was actually one of the most difficult things, I think, at the time, was feeling like your experience was nothing like anyone else's around you. It must have been incredibly isolating. There's a sense with motherhood um, that you're going a bit mad sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. and either everybody's <laughs> lying to you or um, <laughs> exaggerating or whatever. Um, so I actually got picked up on something once by a a friend who um, is disabled and I'd said my online friends, my in real life friends, and she said, actually, you know, I can't easily make in real life friends. My online friends are my in real life friends because and categorizing them as something different from the norm is really ableist because that online support is I mean, sometimes it is the only support. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the relationships that I've developed online um, or through communities where we don't see each other all the time have been incredibly rich, incredibly rich and incredibly life-giving. And also I um, live in a country that I wasn't born. So I have um, very close friends still in Melbourne who I would say are still my closest friends, some of them. Um, uh, But our relationship is not, um, uh, you know, in real life. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know when I'm going to see them again at this point. You know, Australia's borders are closed. It could be a very long time before I see any of them in person. Um, but yeah, we can have a very rich relationship online. And even with the people that I've never met in person, actually, and especially writing this book, which has been a, just such an amazing experience of connecting with other carers. And that was actually one of the most brilliant things about writing it. So I had, I got to have the most incredible intimate conversations with people who are doing 
incredible, incredible things, some really, really challenging things. And they're all leading really rich and varied lives. And my life has been so much richer for knowing them and knowing their stories. Because of course, if you can't see it, if you can't picture yourself doing something, you probably won't try and go for it. But it's not like that's the only reason you get yeah. it. <laughs> I feel so, oh, I, I don't know, like tempted to just dive in and start trying to manifest things. I just think it's so, it's so twisted, isn't it? Because like, okay, so this book is, I think, a really good example. Um, one of the reasons why this book has happened quite easily, I was really, I was really particularly worried about, about um, talking about disability as a non-disabled person. I had to be talking about caring and I could talk about disability, but I couldn't ever talk about it. Like I knew exactly what it was because I don't, I am not disabled. So I can't speak from that kind of point of view at all. But you know, one of the reasons why this book is, is, is out there with a mainstream publisher is because I am not a disabled person. I'm white. I'm middle-class. I'm very, I can, I'm very digestible. Like I'm not too, I don't think I'm too challenging for people. I think a lot of disabled people have written some things that are very similar and they find it harder to get out there. It almost stopped me from writing it, you know, and I think that's what stops a lot of people from writing about really challenging topics is because, um, you know, I had a huge fear that I was going to fuck it up really badly, Mm -hmm. that I was going to talk about things that I wasn't in a position to talk about. I had to keep that in my mind the entire time that what my position was and what I can have an opinion about and what I need to constantly defer to other people yeah. for. And so one of the, I, I interviewed a number of people, um, some professionals like uh, Frances uh, Ryan, who's a, um, who's a fantastic writer. I, and she wrote an amazing book called Crippled last year, which is about the state of disability in the UK at the moment. And it's a shocking, shocking read, but really, really important read. Um, it was really important to me that there were disabled voices in the book. I was, I never wanted to talk on behalf of anybody else. I wanted to talk about my experiences of carer and then share other stories of carers and then share some as well of the stories of being cared for and being supported. I just wanted to make sure that I got it. It's never going to be mm-hmm. perfect. I'm sure I will be challenged on some of the ideas in the book. Cause actually some of the ideas of the book are not comfortable. Um, but I at least felt comfortable when I handed it all over the final draft that I think at this point I've got it as, as um, close, I, I hope, as I can to the ideas that I wanted to get across. Um, let's talk about your book a little bit. I'd love to know how it came about um, and how, what the process is like. I think there's something really, I know we fetishize writing a little bit. I say we, I don't mean me and you. I mean. <laughs> In general, we do. General. We do. Well, I'm going to say something that's going to annoy everybody in that it was an absolute pleasure to write from start to finish. And I absolutely loved it. And I'd do it again in a heartbeat from start to finish. It was such a joy. (laughs) It was such a joy. Um, It came about, I'd started working on a fiction thing. um, And, but I just couldn't get out of my head. These, some of these ideas that I wanted to talk about, which have ended up in the book. 
And um, about 18 months ago, it was only about 18 months ago, um, I went, I was home in Australia visiting um, my family and friends. And for a very quick trip, I go without my children because my son can't travel. And so I just go for like a week and do a very quick trip, blitz everybody, see everyone and then fly back again. And I saw one of my oldest friends who we grew up on the same street together, Lucy, um, who's in the book. Uh, Her mother, Ray, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's about... 10 or 12 years ago now um it was early onset and we were sitting there over a glass of red wine we haven't seen each other in person for about two years um having a good old laugh about the fact that looking after my son and her supporting her mum some days actually looks very very similar and we were having a laugh about some of the a few which I won't go into uh experiences that we have had as carers that were very very similar and it just at that point really struck me that you know what I'm interested in I don't want to talk to other parents with autistic kids particularly um uh, it doesn't like I didn't want to write about just about my son I didn't want to write about autism I'm not autistic I don't want to write about autism um but what I realized was that you know what I've been a carer a couple of times and I really love talking to other carers about their experiences and actually that is what I want to write about and that's what I don't read about that's what I can't find the only books I've ever found on carers really have been very practical but you know it was a different kind of thing I was after I was after like a real deep dive into the really challenging and very kind of diverse and often oppositional emotions that come up Um, in the act of caring for somebody else and so I came back from that trip and I thought right I'm going to write a book proposal (laughs) I'm just going to get it out of my head and I think I did the proposal in a uh, January and February last year so 2019 Um, I'm a photographer which is quite seasonal so January and February quite quiet for me so I thought right okay I'm going to knuckle down do the proposal gave myself the end of February as a deadline at the end of February I had a contact at one particular publisher that I decided to go see because this editor was really lovely um right away she was like yep I want to meet you uh and we had a great meeting but in in the end I decided to go ahead and get an agent and um I had a few that I was interested in that I'd just been keeping a little bit of an eye on um uh that had interesting lists I met with a few and chose one who is my agent Abigail Bergstrom who is just divine um and she read the proposal she got back to me right away and she was just like I can completely see this I want to meet you and the thing that was so exciting about the interest that came up with agents was that um I could see that this was definitely something that was interesting to people outside of my world because um when Abigail and I started talking you know she has no not really any particularly direct experience with it. Um, she's young. She's got a very dynamic list of authors who are all mostly activists and feminists. Um, and I just knew right away she understood a lot of the challenges with the book um, and that she could see that it was necessary and she could see it was a conversation that wasn't happening. And that made me really, really excited. So, um, yeah, we did a little bit of tweaking of the proposal, sent it out, um, had a lot of interest, had a preempt, which I turned down. So that's when somebody gives an offer right away for you to take it off the table and take it away from everybody else. Um, so that was really exciting. Again, it just showed that there was an appetite for this kind of book, which, you know, wasn't really out there. And then I accepted an offer in the middle of the year 
handed it in at Christmas. And the rest is history. Incredible. (laughs) Yeah. It was very fast. It was very fast. So I'd say I wrote, I wrote it between September and and December, essentially. That's fast. But it was such a pleasure. (laughs) It was so enjoyable. It was so enjoyable. I just. Oh, it's really nice to hear somebody talk about something that, yeah, it it is only talked about in sort of not negative terms, but in, yeah, it'd be amazing to have a book, but you know, oh, it's a chore to write and actually you know I'm a writer and I I don't love writing <laughs> I mean I do I I do I love pitching I don't love the first draft I like editing I like pitching and editing I like coming up with the ideas and then editing them yeah I don't know I don't know what it's going to be like the next project you know in terms of like I don't know if that's I suspect this is not going to be a typical experience for me I think it was the right time for me um, it was the, it was, it was a pleasure because I love doing all the interviews. Um, that was absolutely just so wonderful to just dive in to this topic for about an hour and a half or so, or two hours sometimes with, with a person record it and then, and then have to interpret people's stories and take out the bits from the stories that are going to kind of fit together. Because, um, in the book, um, the, the, the way I've divided the chapters are, are kind of by by topics that were interesting to me essentially and then um, and then I found different interviews and I've used other people's stories and my own to illustrate some of the the topics I wanted to talk about so I've sort of woven together um, lots of different stories some of them I go into quite a bit of detail and others it's just I just touch on one small aspect of their story um, and each of the people I spoke to just had the most incredible stories um, and it was just such a pleasure to speak to them and understand more about their lives and to learn from them. I learned from every single one of them about different things that they were going through and different ways that they were coping. And then, yeah, it's, it was like, I guess, putting, I want to say putting a puzzle together, but it was probably more like quilting. I think, you know, like trying to decide how much story, how much of my story to use, how much different, where different pieces of other people's story we're going to weave in and illustrate the kind of things I wanted to talk about. And also there's a lot of research in it as well um, and theory that kind of um, talks about some of the broader ideas. And so I interviewed a few professionals as well and read loads of books. Um, Yeah, so it was, it was a real pleasure actually. Yeah. I was thinking when I was reading it that um, you should have a podcast well, I mean, I did initially think I would do a podcast to go with the launch of the book. Mm. Um, and even if it was only like a six part um, something to kind of dive a little bit deeper into each, maybe six different stories. Yeah. Um, gosh, with everything that was going on, I actually made the decision not to start a new medium <laughs> this time <laughs> because it would have also meant promoting the podcast as well as promoting the book and, and things like that. And um, yeah. And so... I mean, I love podcasts. I'm I'm an absolute kind of audio junkie. I listen to audiobooks, a lot of audiobooks, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. I think it's such an incredible medium. Um, it's such an incredible medium for intimate stories as well. And these are very intimate stories in the book. Um, so it's not, I I wouldn't rule it out for the for the future, but um, but yeah, I decided actually for for this year, the way everything's gone this year, it was probably adding a little bit too much of a challenge to my plate. Yeah. You've, you've got enough on your plate, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so I have one last question to ask you, Penny. And yeah. it is, what is your signature dish? Oh, oh, goodness. Um, I'm going to go with roast chicken. Talk us through your roast chicken. 
Uh, it's I use a recipe from um, a River Cottage book that I've had for like 10 or 12 years and it's so easy you basically slather the chicken in butter um, <laughs> and squeeze loads of lemon onto it and then throw it in the oven and it's so easy and delicious and the reason I love it is because um, obviously I really enjoy eating roast chicken but I love making chicken stock and having chicken soup afterwards and stuff so that's actually the real reason why I roasted chicken is so that I can have the stock afterwards <laughs> 